Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today we have with us Patrick Geddes. How are you, Patrick? I'm doing very well. Yourself? Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. My pleasure. It's great to have you, my friend. If you don't mind uh, sharing in your own words what you do, and we'll take it from there. Uh, sure. So um, I co-founded a firm by the name of Aperio Group, um, which does uh, what's often called direct indexing or customized indexing about a little over 20 years ago. And I was the uh, CEO and then um, retired. I'm still sort of semi-involved um, about uh, a year and a half ago and uh, have since uh, written a book called Transparent Investing. It's really kind of a consumer wake-up call terms of how to interact with the financial services industry and be very cautious about how your own brain works and how this industry uh, uh, interacts. So uh, I've shifted from entrepreneur to author. Author. Which one do you like the, like more? <laughs> well, uh, uh, the, the author one is really about just trying to educate consumers. And that's a hard challenge. I, I, I think actually, ironically, the entrepreneur piece was easier. So uh, yeah. the author was just something I felt I owed people. Uh, the entrepreneur thing was hard and a lot of work, but you know, it was also very fortunate. Turned out, things turned out very well for us. But you're still involved in entrepreneurship, right? Well, I'm still involved with um, my companies, uh, but I've really stepped down. I'm kind of an emeritus and, and uh, uh, semi-retired. So what's the name of the book? Transparent Investing. Transparent Investing. And you mentioned it's more geared towards consumer education? Yeah. So um, there's this presumption that you can avoid market downturns and only be in the market when it's going up. And the evidence is overwhelming that that's not possible. So there's this weird sort of paradox that you, you actually get wealthier by doing less and by being less confident in your ability to predict what's going to happen. So psychologically, we're wired to try to intervene. And as an, it's also, I think, particularly for, for entrepreneurs, that's a very counterintuitive Go with concept the because entrepreneurs, yeah, entrepreneurs are re reactive and you look mm. at the market and you're constantly I agree. Um, adjusting. And, and as an entrepreneur, I had to, we had to go through that, my, my, my co-founder and I. So um, the funny part is when you get to investing, that logic no longer applies. And that's a very, very hard uh, mindset shift to get into that, that uh, staying away from trying to predict financial market returns actually makes you a lot wealthier. Similarly, um, uh, I would argue that humility makes you a lot richer. And typically people think of humility in economic terms, in terms of 
poverty, you know, the, the, the little sisters of mercy or Zen mm. monks, whatever. Um, but actually humility where you acknowledge you don't have any ability to pick where the stock market's going to go, for example, or you don't want to hire anyone to do that because the industry doesn't have that skill set on average. Um, that humility actually can make you a lot wealthier. And that's just, just doesn't sound right. But it's true. It's true. You know, it's, um, we, we, we teach this as well in, in, in mindset, right? Is that when you, when you force, you negate, when you're trying to force an outcome and you push and you push, you actually goes against you. And when you operate from, from power, meaning that, you know, the faith and the belief and, you know, and you just go with it, it just turns out better, you know, like it's, it's hard to understand or comprehend, but I just feel like we're part of something magical. So um, it does happen. Yeah, it can happen. The, the problem with entrepreneurship is obviously being very dedicated and working incredibly hard is yeah. a necessary yeah. condition. You can't succeed as an entrepreneur without that. Yeah. But really hard work by itself doesn't guarantee you'll get anywhere. Yeah. And that, that's the un, uh, unfortunate challenge entrepreneurs all face is um, – how do you know, you know, when to throw in the towel? And that's an incredibly hard um, uh, analysis or assessment to make. And it's so easy to go wrong either way, stick with something that's clearly never going to work out or throw in the towel too soon when perseverance paid off. And, and, and in our experience, we were three, four years into the, into the business and it was, it was limping along. We used to just say, um, how are things going? Well, it's too much of a success to be labeled a failure, but too much of a failure to be labeled a success. And then finally, about five years in, or maybe four to five years, it really got some traction and started taking off. But that didn't seem all that clear when we were, you know, three years in and we were sort of limping along. So in that particular situation, it's great we hung on. I mean, the, the company got really big. We had over 100 employees at my retirement and 42 billion in under assets under management but none of that's certain so it's a a very tricky balancing act uh as an entrepreneur where you need that passion and that drive that typically comes from sort of ego and confidence but you also need a lot of humility but not so much that you sort of say well i'm you know i'm never going to succeed so why should i bother and you can't have that attitude yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's very hard to get that right. And particularly on the humility side, one of the things I learned was as you grow, it's very hard to keep in mind that the skills, perhaps your own skills that got you from, you know, your zero to 10 people or from, you know, uh, your first million of revenue to 5 million of revenue, those are very different skills from what gets you from 50 to 100 employees or or you know, thirty million to hundred million in revenue, and and it's really important to keep yourself very conscious of the stuff you're good at and the stuff you're not so good at. And as the business grows and as new skill sets are needed, uh, the importance again of that humility. And you may be a great uh, founder, 
but not a great leader. You may not be a great founder. I, I was lucky enough that I I, uh, uh, I co-founded a Perio group with a fellow who, he's actually much more of an entrepreneur than I am, but he's not as strong on the execution side. So he had some vision that I was very much lacking, but then I built this factory that you know was not in his skill set. And you need both of those pieces. And you know we were lucky that each of us recognized um, boy, you know, just one of our skill sets alone was not going to do it. What would you say to someone who has, for example, in the audience, you know, they have a thousand dollars and they want to multiply that thousand dollars, but they don't want to risk it. And obviously there's a risk, but as, as, as safe as possible, what would you recommend they do in 2023 with that money that you can predict? So you, you, well, I recommend people invest over uh, the time horizon of, uh, of when, how long until they need the money. Typically, people are looking kind of at retirement, so it's often 20, 30, 40 years. And that's a very different time horizon from trying to outsmart what's going to happen in 2023. So the first step, and I outline this in the book, and th this is fairly common, is you you need to come up with a, a balance between what I call your safer bucket and your riskier bucket. Safer is bonds and cash. Riskier is everything else, stocks, real estate, private equity. Um, and so what should someone do if they've got a 40-year time horizon and they've got the risk tolerance, they should be thinking about something like a um, maybe 80% or even higher in the risky bucket. And the problem is that just feels like, but but the market's so awful right now. The market is always dangerous. And when you start taking a 30, 40-year time horizon, you invest really differently. But our emotions are focused typically in the last about six months, if not three months. So um, the hardest thing is to kind of decouple from where our emotions are. And generally, uh, in, in uh, much of life, in fact, I'm not sure I can think of any other part of life, uncoupling from your emotions is a really unhealthy thing psychologically or emotionally or spiritually. But when it comes to investing, um, decoupling from your emotions uh, is going to make you a lot richer. And what would you? What would your number one tip be for an investor that's already, you know, hands in in investing and has been in the next couple of years? What would your number one tip be for them? Just um, stay the course. Make sure your asset allocation matches your long-term horizon. And if stay away from trying to tweak it and thinking, well, the market's kind of choppy and frightening right now. I'll, I'll ratchet up my riskier allocation once things get safer. You're, you're, that's a horrible idea. You're, you're already behind once you start doing that. Instead, stick with whatever. If, if you've got the right asset, like let, let's say you've got a 40-year horizon and you're you're, you know, 70% risky, 30 safer. Um, and that was the right fit for you, then stick with it. Don't change it. If you are very heavily toward the safer side because 
like you bailed out of the market, that that's a very dangerous path. Once you start presuming, you can readjust. So the biggest advice, I, two bits of advice. One is um, if you've got the right asset, the right balance between your risky and safer, stick with it. And the second is um, it, for most people, stick with simple. And there's a presumption, well, yeah, simple is for for you know the little people. That's for losers. I, I'm very very sophisticated. Incredibly sophisticated investors often have um, very very simple portfolios. There's a myth that complicated means better. And I'm I got to be careful here. The company we built, we did some very complicated things. We did some very advanced risk management, tax management techniques. But you need to be careful that you don't mistake complexity for uh, sexy and appealing and higher return. So keep it simple for most people and stick with whatever uh, asset allocation you pick. Stay away from the temptation to try and adjust. Acknowledge that you feel really bad. I feel bad when the market goes down. This isn't a pretending, oh, it shouldn't bother you. It'll bother you a lot. This is your money. People feel awful when they look at their balance drop. But that doesn't mean it leads to good decisions. So be very sympathetic with your emotional suffering or, or, or suffering of others, but don't act on it. Hmm. That's saying, what is it? It's uh, simple skills, complex fails. Yes. And, and, and um, for investing, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's kind of like dieting. Well, why don't you just eat less? Oh, Easy that's all I need to do. Or, or, or let's say alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you just stop drinking? Oh, oh I should have thought of that. <laughs> uh, and so similarly with, with investing, it's about, uh, you know, we're, we're biological creatures. We evolved from survival mechanisms that kept us alive 4,000 years ago when Homo sapiens first came on the scene. But they're not so good for modern markets. They would be great for uh, keeping us alive on the, you know, the, the the plains of Central Africa from whence we all came. You know, if you're looking out for lions, those instincts are terrific. Yeah. But the same instincts don't work well when stock markets collapse. Yeah, yeah. fear fear goes against us. You know, in in the modern world, um, fear can hold us back. Uh, having that confidence, having that calmness, you know, that whatever happens, happens, you know, it is what it is, right? And and having that internal belief system, that solid foundation um, allows you to be more clear when you're making the decisions as well. Exactly. And it's, again, counterintuitive for the entrepreneurial mindset, which is often um uh, most successful, and there is a kind of uh, passion and a very active, proactive engagement. So uh, I've seen this with many, many entrepreneurs, especially very successful ones who get, you know, become centimillionaires. And the challenge is they've done something really impressive. They've built a company that got bought by some big firm, say, and they're assuming, well, I'll just take that same Midas touch when I get to the public equity with the investing world, no, it doesn't work that way. It's it's actually the opposite skill set. And the 
mindset that gets you very well. Let's say you're starting with $1,000 and you want to be worth $100 million. You have to take really big risks. You can't do that without some you know, major sort of entrepreneurial or other um, risk-taking. But once you become wealthy, preserving wealth is a completely different mindset. And frankly, it's a lot more boring. And so it's a very hard shift I've experienced for entrepreneurs to go from the the approach that actually made them successful. And they will literally tell you, like, you're telling me to abandon the thing that made me wealthy? And the answer is kind of because it's a completely different world. And that's that's a very hard adjustment. So back to your comment, it's simple. It's not a complicated thing to understand, but it's not easy. What would your, in your experience, because I, you seem like, you know, obviously you're very passionate about all this um, and you must be watching. As a watcher, what would your number one tip be to invest in, in a stock in the, right now? Uh, there is no stock you should, um, for stocks, I recommend investing in global capitalism. So people ask, well, what's the best stock investment? For me, the best stock investment is the entire world's public markets. And you can buy that in one index fund or ETF. Okay. Uh, and you can own all the world's publicly traded stocks in the proportion of their, their value. So, you know, uh, Amazon and Tesla and Microsoft are huge holdings and little tiny company, you know, some small Thai brewery that's publicly traded in Thailand. You still own a little tiny sliver of it, but uh, since there's not that much money invested in it, you, you own a very small piece. Then you're investing in capitalism and you're not trying to pick which stocks are going to do better. And that's been very well proven on average. That's the challenge. It's always on average. There are a few people who do really, really well. And there will always be people who beat indexing or beat benchmarks. But on average, it's not that many over longer time horizons. So the best advice is buy global capitalism. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Patrick, what, what do you feel your innermost superpower is that got you to this point? Wow. That's a tricky one because I've been talking about humility and mm -hmm. you want me to identify an innermost superpower, which is not going to uh, be reflecting humility. Um, for you personally. So I would, I would say it was um, innermost superpower. A couple kind of – one is – a fixation on self-awareness mm. and watching for your own gaps and shortcomings. Yes. I one of the things I learned as as a CEO was the more I took public and internal ownership of the stuff I was bad at, and that was a long list, the better I got at the stuff I was good at. Yeah. So that fixation on on self-awareness helped, and there's there's a, a a component of that that's also um helps in terms of analyzing and making decisions. One of the things I learned was I wasn't all that good at making business decisions, but I do have a very good BS meter when people are trying to pitch something that's not valid. So 
there are a lot of complicated decisions you got to make. We were an investment firm. One of the big challenges was always how much should you invest in in infrastructure in your technology? And there's no simple, easy, right answer there. But it was an area where I was kind of over my head. I, I mean, I knew you needed to invest in that. And what I learned is I don't know how to know how to do that, but I do know I do need to know how to listen to people external or internal, make recommendations and suss out, that sounds really valid. You thought it through. It may be the wrong decision, but at least it's very conscious. So uh, a superpower around, again, that self-awareness of be very, very careful of both external and your own internally generated, I'll call it BS, like the, we all have this blend of wisdom and sort of self-serving ego-driven uh, bullpucky. And so um, the more you can discern your own, the better off you are, and the more you can discern others, but you got to be really careful to distinguish between someone's telling me something I don't like is different from something someone is telling me something that's wrong. And you're going to hear a lot of things you don't like. You're going to hear a lot of things that go against how you would do things. And um, some of my most successful decisions as a CEO <laughs> involve when I thought something was a bad idea and people around me would say, no, we need to do this. And I was like, all right, you guys are in the trenches. And the evidence usually supported that they were right. So that's um, the superpower is is pay a lot of attention. It's very expensive to be self-aware, oh, man. both as a firm and, and as an individual. Yeah. It's, really expensive psychic. Yeah, it, it is. But that... Um, I didn't realize how much that can help you in terms of better decisions. Mm. Yeah, it's so true, Patrick. Like when I, at times, look at when I wasn't self-aware, um, you know, ego-driven, I, when I play back my days to day and how I used to operate and look at things and and honestly, it, it just, it felt like I was just everywhere. You know, it just, it, there was no structure. There was no organ, organization as a human being. I wasn't like, it didn't feel like I was operating with the right version of the software. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it didn't feel right. Yeah. So now once you become self-aware, and you, you like you said, it takes a lot of work, right? It's uh, it, it requires a lot of willpower initially to to do it. But once you find a home there and you spend more and more time there, not just your own reality becomes clear, but like you said about others, like what they are feeling, what they're thinking, what their vibration is, what their ideas are, you're taking it in, right? Like you're, it just feels like you just get amplified, like the light turns on, right? Yeah, that's awesome. In fact, what's funny is as you were describing the benefits as an individual. Yeah. I was listening to you and I kept thinking uh, what, what Shahid is saying applies equally to an organization. Yeah. The more self-aware yes. an organization is, the yes. less ego-driven, yes. the healthier the decisions. And, you know, it's it's a sort of a, 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 a truism, an overbeaten thing that, you know, what's the yeah. line? Culture uh, beats strategy or eat strategy for lunch, some silly line. Yeah. It, it's actually true that um, a really good culture can be so great for, and basically a really good culture is be very um, 
considerate and kind to the people you're interacting with, people, your staff, and yeah. your clients. Treat them the way you'd like to be treated. Mm. Don't treat them the way that's going to maximize your short-term profitability. And similarly, be as open as you can and and a kind of you know intellectual rigor. But what you described as the 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 almost the kind of codification of of a belief system and and passion you can do that within an organization yes. as well but it's just as hard because yeah. my fa- I used to complain about organizations and my father would joke with me he said Patrick I know why you don't like organizations they have people in them yeah. <laughs> and so that exact same wisdom applies that it takes a lot of work it's kind of psychically expensive and Frankly, there are people who don't like working in a sort of open communication, open setting, because if you're a kind of a bit of a con artist and fast talker, it's not going to fly as well in a, in a world anchored more in, in self-awareness and, and, and honesty. But one of the things I noticed was you can, you can actually use the social construct to help constrain any individual. So for example, when I, um, we had a, a reorganization, a private equity firm came in about four years ago. And so we, uh, for the first time we had a, you know, a very official legal board. And one of the first things I wanted to do was build in some CEO accountability. I was the CEO and I, we hired an outside consultant who talked to about 15 of the top people like I want to go through everything. What's Patrick good at? What's he not so good at? Where does he walk the talk? Where is he? Uh, where is he thinner? Um, where is he a hypocrite? Mm. And then present it to the board. And the best compliment I heard was from the consultant who'd done a lot of uh, work with very large companies, board structure CEO. And she said, "You know, I've done dozens and dozens of these CEO board assessment things, but I've." always been hired by the board. This is the first time I ever had one initiated by the CEO. And I just wanted to set that precedent of CEOs can get away with a lot of, uh, a lot of crap. And uh, I just thought accountability is a really healthy thing and you got to start accountability at the top. So let's start with the CEO and accountability to the board. And this new board, they were kind of, they'd never seen anything like this. They were like, this is kind of weird, but whatever. You guys are quirky. So um, uh, yeah, use the social construct to tap into the wisdom of other people because power structure uh, can gum up um, honesty. Power and the truth are, in my mind, not, not, uh, not the best of pals. Yeah. No, great, great talk, Patrick. You know, it's about that point about having this self-awareness for organizations, it it really needs to start at the top, right? Whoever's that CEO, whoever it is, it has to start from that awareness, has to start from there and move its way down. But it has to start with individuals, you know, as a human being. Organization is what? Like as people, right? So if you start from the top and they start working individually on their own self, it, it, it is very, very difficult, you know, but it's super simple. But once you do that, everything, just all areas of the organization start amplifying, start getting better, not just the sales department, marketing department, the, the relationships. And the people that do not like it or they're saying, you know, what is this? You know, what do I have to do here? 
you know, they're they're just not ready yet, right? Their their ego is is really amplified still, and they haven't gotten that 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 glimpse of what that world may look like. So they might kind of cause that uh, uh, defense um, uh, regarding that idea, but eventually. You know, they, they, they see how, how powerful and how, how much better it is for their organization and their families and their health and everything else, right? Yeah. I, I noticed that, too, that, that it was a lot more fun to work at an organization where people liked coming to work. And one of the things that I think is, again, worth investing in is conflict management, where we had a situation about three, four years ago with some <laughs> very classic conflict between sales marketing and production, right? And so we formed this task force and broke people up into like groups that always had both. And you had to make a specific recommendation, like a do nothing, make a recommendation for a radical change and a sort of mod. And the, the, and we spent a lot of time, this was like, they had, I don't know, six, eight meetings. They would do breakout sessions. And they came back afterwards and just said, this was so terrific. Can we keep doing this on an ongoing basis? It's so great to hear how the other department interacts. Obviously, they both had valid points. And it was such a great lesson in the payoff from that kind of conflict management. Humans, you're going to have conflict. So just figure out how to deal with it. Um, Our approach was always get it out on the table. Get it in the open. You're going to have disagreements and what you want to do is argue through the actual uh, sort of logic and evidence, almost like a courtroom, and try and stay away from uh, more, you never call it this, it's too accusatory, like selfish motivation. Like, are you wearing the company hat or your own personal hat here? And the only, and it's fine to wear your personal hat as long as you're owning that. Uh, we, we would describe it as the only real sin that Aperio was if you're looking out for yourself and you're pretending you're wearing the company hat, like, no, 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 that was not going to get taught. It's fine to say, look, I would rather do it this way. It's going to benefit me. It's going to benefit my department. Um, and, and other times you need to, you know, make a decision for the company that may not be the best for you or your department. Um, but again, be very open. And it, it was so heartening to watch, both clients and the, and the people who worked here respond to their, I mean, especially in this economy, people are so used to being treated like a, a dish rag from which either their vendors or their employers want to wring that last extra drop of moisture. And nobody likes being treated that way. And when you show a little more respect, man, people just, just thrive. And it's so gratifying to watch, you know, the fact that we were financially successful was great, but that we did it with that ethos was actually the part I'm, I'm the most thrilled with and proudest of. That's awesome, Patrick. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, conflicts and these issues become quite petty once we become self-aware and once we become in that higher consciousness or we just start analyzing. Try, try telling ourselves. that to someone in the midst of a meltdown. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's in the midst of a meltdown, meaning they're not self-aware, right? But once you become exactly, more self-aware, exactly. those those become petty, like the conflict. You know, when you rise above above something, and then like you you're more calmer. Like with kids, when the two siblings are fighting, as a parent, you're like 
know, it's not a big deal. Like, okay, you took your pen, you know, what, what's, yep, what's yep. a big deal? So yeah. you're looking at it with a different kind of lens and energy. So you yeah. find better yeah. solutions yep. when you're, when you become right into it and infused into the situation where you can't have that higher seat to view it from, you become part of the conflict and the conflict continuously grows. Yep. yep amplify it grows yeah. into like a virus right so yeah, yeah. No, i definitely agree with that and i appreciate your time patrick for coming on the show it was a wonderful talk uh, hopefully we added some value to the audience and audience thank you so much uh, for being part of this show and being part of this episode share with family and friends patrick shared some um, amazing information check out his book as well all his information will be in the show notes i appreciate you guys keep continue to engage with our social media pages and the best part that i love about you guys is the fact that you're sharing these episodes and that is that is great that's probably the reason for the growth and i appreciate it again patrick thank you so much for your time and keep in touch my pleasure. Thank you. All right.